Welcome to the Keystone Church Podcast. Keystone Church is located in Keller, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Now, let's prepare our hearts for this week's message. We've been looking in the Bible at stories in the book of Acts of persecution stories. And God put it on my heart to walk through different persecution stories in the Bible because I really believe if they could get through it, we could get through it. And what are the things in their stories that helped them get through it, that helped them push through a difficult season? And so it's been amazing, really, to see what God has done this summer. It's been remarkable um, what God has done. And today we're picking up at Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is rich. If you have a Bible, I'll give you time to, to turn there. If you've got a phone and you're new to the Bible, just Google Acts, A-C-T-S, and then the number 12, and then it'll take you right there. Um, And you can follow along on the screen. Acts chapter 12, verse one. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized Peter, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. That's four groups of four, 16 soldiers. Four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So you have James, a leader in the church, killed. You have Peter arrested, and you have the people praying. And the title of today's message is this, Deliverance and Doubts. Deliverance and Doubts. Let's pray together. God, I am praying right now for saving faith for someone in this room. Someone that's one signature away from signing those divorce papers. They're looking for some answers. They're coming, seeking. God, I'm praying for somebody to find freedom today in this room at Revival Nights tonight. I pray for people to be healed. God, we're asking for a manifestation of your power in such a great amount that more people would be drawn to you and more people would trust you with their life, their everyday decisions. And God, we pray right now as we have read this word and as we'll continue to engage your holy word, as we open the Bible, Father, I pray freedom would open up in this house. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Susan and I, I mentioned went to Israel. It's her first time to go, my second time to go. We went this past year, and, and we went because we're taking a group of you, and, and it's still open, by the way. There's limited seats, but you'll definitely want to jump in. If it's something you've been wanting to do, you'll definitely want to jump in. When we went, one of the things that I saw this trip that I'd never seen before, and it stands as one of those things I can't wait to show you, uh, is right off the Mount of uh, the Mount of Olives, when you're coming down the Mount of Olives into that 
Garden of Gethsemane area at the bottom of the, uh, along that road, and it's the very road that Jesus walked on as he was headed toward the cross after the Last Supper. Right off of that road, our guide tucked us into this little garden over here, and there's this little kind of chapel-looking structure and this guide, she said, hey, look inside. And she began to unpack what we were looking at. I saw a bunch of stone boxes kind of assembled around. And I saw, you know, maybe, maybe they weren't all stone boxes. But these boxes and the tops were off of them. She said, hey, take a look in there. And as I looked in, I was shocked and amazed. I'll, I'll, I did a video in the moment. And I'll probably post it this week. But I was shocked as she described to me what we were looking at. Uh, right at the turn of the 20th century, they discovered this little area was a, what we were looking at was a, was a tomb. Now in those, do, those days, what they would do is they would, in a tomb, they would uh, lay out the body and they would allow the body to decompose. And after the body had decomposed, they would come in and they would collect the bones and they would assemble the bones in a box those boxes were stone or those boxes were made of clay or maybe ceramic, but those boxes held the bones. Those boxes, we call them ossuaries, ossuaries. And so what I was looking at that day was a gathering of ossuaries. This is a picture of what I saw. This is a picture I took. These ossuaries. And the significance of these ossuaries is not only their age, they were right at the turn of, of the millennium. They were before 70 AD. So they were, they were younger than, seven, older than 70 AD. These, it's unbelievable what, what I began to understand. And when I got back home, I began to research it more. That this discovery was shocking because this was a tomb of Christians. And to be a Christian in early First century Jerusalem means that you were a Christian before 70 AD. The reason we know that is that 70 AD, there would not have been the freedom to bury people like this if you were a Christ follower because Rome conquered Jerusalem and tore it down. And so there's all these markers and all of this evidence that here we have a tomb with early Christians and they had markings and, and, and all of the sign for Christianity. They had crosses and they had iconography and they had the names of some of the people that, that had buried there. On their ossuary, they had their names and they had all these different names. One name was strange because this particular name isn't found. It's a very unique name, very unique name. This particular name uh, you can't find this name. It's not like Joe or Sally or Bill or Susan. It's not a common name. This is a name that actually is not in any ancient writings. They can't find this name anywhere except for one place, Acts chapter five. It's such a unique name. In antiquity, there's only one place we see this name in all of writing, and it's in Acts chapter five. And the name is Shafira, not Shakira, Shapira. Okay. Anyway, I can't. Okay, there we go. Shapira. <laughs> if you're new to Keystone, 
we do this. Um, but the way that it would have been translated in our language would have been Sapphira or Sapphira. And the only place that it's ever recorded is in Acts chapter five in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And if that doesn't kind of get you, whoa, I don't know if it's that Sapphira. I don't know if it's the Sapphira of Acts chapter five, but wow. And then they found around the same time, around just 1920s, they found in Bethany another tomb with ossuaries, except this one wasn't totally Christian. There were a lot of Jews there as well, but there were some Christians as well. And, and what they began to discover is this is a Jewish household where some people started becoming Christians. Some of the names, the first name I'll give you in that, in that tomb at Bethany was Eliezer. Eliezer, we would translate Lazarus. Another name in that tomb, Mary. Another name in that tomb, Martha. Now, if this, this gives me goosebumps. Do I know that this is the Lazarus that was raised from the dead? I don't know, but I do know he was from Bethany. He had family members named Mary and Martha, and all I'm saying is that archaeology and science is always catching up to the Bible. The Bible is not catching up to archaeology and science. It's amazing. One of the things that that dawns on me though as I think about these characters, these early Christians. 70 AD, Jesus died on the cross, 33 AD. So that's, that's too hard of math to me to do standing in front of you like this with the pressure on. But not a lot of time. And in that amount of time where we are in Acts chapter 12 is 12 years after the, the resurrection of Christ, 10 to 12 years. So we have perhaps the very Christians that are written of in this story that we will unpack today, we were looking at their resting place. And those Christians, those Christians had a very tough life. This is not fairy tale stories. These are not bedtime fairy tale stories. These Christ followers had a very tough time. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 11, we read that the church in Antioch knew that hard times were coming. They had received a prophetic word that a famine was coming, and to prepare for that famine, what did they do? Did they store up money for themselves? No, their instinct was, we better raise money for the Jerusalem church, because they struggle. They have it hard. They're kicked out of their families, disowned. They're persecuted, killed. They're jailed, kicked out of the market, fired from their jobs. They have it really, 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 really hard. So their instinct in Acts chapter 11, let's raise some money for those Christians in Jerusalem. What we see is this church under pressure. Those Christ followers right there lived under pressure. How did they live? What did they do? Well, they had troubles. And when your faith is under pressure, some of you may be tempted to believe that I've done something wrong. I thought to become a Christ follower meant everything went perfect, everything was great. And you may say, where did I mess up? But I'm here to tell you today, 
A lot of times, when your faith is under pressure, it is actually a sign that your faith is authentic, that you're doing something right, that you're on the right track. When you are a Christ follower, this is not this wide open, easy going way. To follow Jesus, the Bible teaches us, and Jesus said, this is a narrow way. This is a narrow way. Jesus said to his disciples, if you wanna follow me, you have to take up your cross. He also said, hey, this cup of suffering I'm about to take, you must drink of it as well. He said a servant is no greater than his master. You might think, man, Jesus needed better marketing. Yeah, come follow me, I've got a cross for you. But that's what he said. And these Christ followers, they believed it. They said the, the beauty and the glory of what is to come puts to dust, puts it in the dust, puts it to shame any suffering that I would have on this earth. I wonder if some of these Christ followers in these ossuaries had actually seen the risen Christ and were put to death, saying, if you'll just say you didn't see him, did you know there was over 500 people that died saying, I saw the risen Christ? And they died because they were saying, I have seen the risen Christ. Faith under pressure is a sign of authentic faith. Herod Agrippa, what were those words? He laid violent hands. What a descriptive phrase. He laid violent hands on the church. Herod, Herod Agrippa here, he was on uncertain political ground. He had a political alliance with the Roman emperor Caligula, and Caligula was not on top at this point in human history. Again, part of the way that we date all these things, it fits beautifully, and we see Herod Agrippa, who was under the authority of the, of, the, of the emperor of Rome. He was a little unpopular, and he had bad alliances, and so what did he do? I've gotta make this Jewish, these, this Jewish people, I've gotta make them happy, so what does he do? He goes and he arrests James, kills him. The Bible says by the sword. There's two ways you die by the sword. There's the Roman way, and there's the, the Jewish way in those days. The Roman way was unclean. They wouldn't have done that. The Jewish people wouldn't have done that. They would have considered that unclean. The Roman way was beheading. The Jewish way was to be impaled by a sword. Think like samurai soldier, to be impaled by a sword. I tend to believe that he was beheaded because we know he was at, uh, at, the, at the fort there by the Temple Mount, and that was a Roman fort, and I believe that he was killed that way. It happened to be the same place that Jesus was condemned by Pilate to die. So you see all this rich history, you see all this happening, James has been killed. The Jewish community in, in Jerusalem did not like the church. At this point, the Jewish church was growing slowly. The Gentile church, which would have been the Roman church, the church in, in Corinth and the church in Ephesus, all that, they were exploding. So it was becoming more and more of a Gentile religion. Right now, unless you are Jewish, we are Gentiles. And it was becoming more and more of a Gentile religion, and so the Jews did not like that. So it pleased them for James to be killed by the sword. And Agrippa saw this, and he's like, man, that, that worked. I, that worked. I'm getting some popularity. Let's double down. Let's get the head of the church, Peter. So put violent hands on Peter, and these are the only two names we know of. 
put violent hands on Peter, and what happens next? Peter has four squads, that's 16 soldiers, so that they could rotate them in and out every two hours and nobody would get tired. Why did they go to such trouble for Peter? Because we learned a few weeks ago, Peter had a way of getting out of jail. And I'm not sure the Romans would have, or Herod would have said, hey, this dude's slipper. I'm not sure he would have given God credit, but we know God got Peter out of jail. And so he's like, that's not happening on my watch. Troubles. If you were the church in Jerusalem and you were at the market and you are with the girlfriend and you're doing your thing and they would say, hey, how's your church? How are you doing? I wonder what they would say. Well, James, who was the brother of John, they were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. This is one of the first followers of Jesus Christ. James, one of the first, so he's an OG Christian. Definitely saw Christ crucified, saw him risen. Experienced the persecution, he had just been killed. And our pastor has been imprisoned. I'm discouraged, maybe they would say. I, I don't know what's happening. I mean, I lost my job because I'm a Christ follower. This is hard, guys. They had troubles. There are troubles to follow Christ even today. Worldwide, maybe you've seen the headlines. Uh, Ethiopian government tightens grip against the Orthodox Church. A Nicaraguan government declares war on the Catholic Church. Even today, there is a governmental tightening even in America where 54% of all Americans believe that our religious liberty is on the decline. That's more people than in America, that's more people than would say I'm a faithful church grower. So it's our culture as a whole. The majority of our culture feels religious liberty on the decline. Now understand, when I talk about religious liberty, I'm not just scoring political points. When I talk about religious liberty, I'm talking about the freedom to be salt and light in a culture that is dark. And so we're just a, a few weeks away from July 4th where we celebrate our independence. We should also be celebrating a nation that secures religious liberty because, because of America, we have shined the light in the darkness more than any country and any people and the churches have more freedom than ever in the history of the world. And we should be thankful for that. We should. So when religious liberty, when we wanna silence the church, which comes in through the back door of you can't talk about what the Bible says about that. You can't talk about what the Bible says about that. You can't talk about what the Bible says about that. When, when it is crystal clear, you can't talk about human sexuality that way, that's hate speech. You can't talk about this, you can't talk about that. When you talk about that, when there is a pressure to be silenced and far too many people are silent. You're experiencing troubles. You're having that pushback for following Jesus and believing what you believe. We have cancel culture. And we have, I believe, one of the greatest threats is the, is the threat from within. The threat from within. That we are so hard on each other and disunified as a global church, as an American church. Jesus, right before he went, to the cross, he prayed this prayer. He said, Father, may they be, does anybody know? One. Let's say it together. Father, may they be, may they be one, as you and I are one. And then he put a little something on it. So that the world will know that you sent me. 
So what does the devil wanna do? Divide the church so the world won't know that Jesus is who he says he was. So I don't know, I don't see the spiritual gift of cancel culture in the Bible. I don't see the spiritual gift and the office in the Bible in Ephesians chapter four. I don't see, okay, these are the gifts to the church, pastor, preacher, evangelist, teacher, and hater blogger. I don't see it. I don't know, there's something about me that if you, if you are waiting for people to fail, I just feel like there's something wrong in your spirit if your spiritual gift is waiting and watching and pouncing on people who fail. At this church, we've been talking about unity for a long time, and one of the things we say is, we're not talking about uniformity, okay? We don't all act exactly the same, look exactly the same, come from the same, do the same. It's not uniformity, it's unity. Those are two different things. There's beauty in our diversity. Different backgrounds, different creativity, different gifts, different socioeconomic, different cultures. As we all come together and the world sees a unity that the government cannot create, that Washington cannot create, that the business world cannot create, it stands in sharp contrast to the rest of the world. And people say, there must be something happening there. While the rest of the world is at their throats, we are together singing our songs. And may I say this, one of the sweet, sweet ministries of this church is the behind the scenes ministry of conflict resolution. I mean it, we do a lot of it. We work hard. You know why? Because we are imperfect people. We should have a sign in front of our door, no perfect people allowed. Which means everybody's allowed. So we're like, I don't like that. Well, you have a pride problem. They didn't want me there. So you're saying you're perfect. But seriously, no perfect people out. And that means church is not the place where you will have never any conflict and no one will ever offend you. Can I just set the table for a new Christ follower today? This is a place where when you're gonna be with people, people are gonna bug you. Some of you are like, oh yeah, amen, preach it more. <laughs> people bug me all the time. You're bugging me right now. <laughs> but it's the work of unity. In other words, we need another sign over our door. Brothers don't shake hands, brothers hug. Right? Like we come together, even when there's a little something there, hey, let's work for it, let's work for it. Troubles, troubles. So how did the church respond? Acts 12, five. So Peter was kept in prison, and we already read this, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Then in verse six, the story goes forward. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping in between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So Peter is asleep in prison, and he is dog-tired. Like, he is dead asleep. I don't know why he was asleep. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe truly he had been so persecuted and beaten and stayed up and sleep deprivation. I don't know. That he was, they were unable to wake him up. Even this bright light, he was down for the count. Almost like jet lag down for the count. That is kind of funny. The angel had to like, boom, hit him with a, with a staff. Like, dude, get up. 
Deliverance is here. It gets funnier. He struck him on the side, get up quickly, chains fell off, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. It's like he's dressing a child. That's how out of it Peter was. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. Peter thought maybe this is a dream, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, listen to this detail, and they came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. Again, Peter thinks he's dreaming. And immediately the angel left him, and when Peter came to himself, which in cartoon language is, I, I, I. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all of the Jewish people and all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that guy. It's widely known and believed that Mark wrote the very first copy of scripture. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Little Rhoda, she's in scripture forever. Good for her. By the way, it gets funnier. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Dude, Herod maybe sending the soldiers looking out up and down the streets, and he's sitting there at the gate, and Rhoda leaves him at the gate, and he's like, yo, Rhoda! Help a brother out. (laughs) Oh, man, this is even better. So she's telling everybody inside, praying for Peter's deliverance, praying for a miracle. She comes in and she reports that Peter is standing at the gate. And immediately the whole church got up and ran out and hugged in tears for Peter. No, they said to her, you are out of your mind. (laughs) But she kept insisting, it's Peter, it's Peter. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. In other words, it's kind of like Jewish people at that time believed everybody had a guardian angel and that it might look like you and it was just a kind of a cultural thing, not a scriptural thing. And so it'd almost be like us saying, man, you're seeing a ghost. Which means while they're praying for a miracle, they had an easier time believing in ghosts than they did that he was rescued from prison. While they were praying for him to be rescued from prison. Are you with me? What's the title of today's message? Deliverance and Doubts. But Peter continued knocking. (laughs) I think that's funny, he's just back there. Guys, he hasn't stopped. Peter continued knocking, when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning with them to be quiet, guys. Herod may be coming. He described to them, went in, and he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. When he talks about James, he's not talking about James. He, it's not like he was unaware that James, the brother of John, had been executed. 
He's talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who was a pastor. So what did they do? What can we see here when the pressure is on? They gathered. They gathered. They gathered. Oh, when you read of the church in the book of Acts, what do you see them doing over and over again? They gather, they gather, they gather, they gather. Can I help you? You are not made to do this life alone. We gather. You are not made to just live out there constantly around the world, always in and out of the culture. You got your golf buddies, you got your work friends, you got this, that, and then you barely, barely, barely are around the people of God. No, no, we need to fall into the arms of our church. We need the church, we need to gather. They, when they were at the point of their greatest discouragement, what did they do? They gathered. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. Okay, so I'm gonna just put it in your lap. How can I encourage you? How can I stir up your love? How can I stir up good works? How can you leave here being a more loving person? How can you leave here feeling more love? How can you leave here doing better things, making better choices? How can you make better choices as a person? And then he answers it, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So this is the place where you come to get encouraged. Now, I, I wanna tell you, there may be some things holding you back from gathering, and I wanna help you, because you've stumbled, and you feel like, I can't show my face there. Can I, can I just, this would break my heart, but can I just advocate for somebody right now? Can I? This would break my heart if this was the case. May it not be said of Keystone, but the last time you were here, you look differently than you do now because now you're coming in and you've got a bump, a beautiful life. And you're like, I can't. Oh God, I pray right now that if there is any young mother out there with an unexpected pregnancy, may this be the place that they come and they feel the greatest love anywhere. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, may they feel loved, may they feel accepted, may this be the place they come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Right? If you have an addiction and you were in a small group and, and you fell off and you've, You've fallen back into that addiction. This is the place you come back. You say, but man, I've fallen off before and I can't, I can't face them again. I can't face them again and them know that I've messed up again. This is where you gather. This is the place where we wrap our arms around you. This is the place where we come together. Right, church? This is the place. We gather and they prayed they pray, let this be the encouraging place where we gather, let this be the place where we pray. Tonight at Revival Night, we will be praying. We will be singing and we will be praying. We're gonna pray for you to be healed. If there's anything that we can help you with, we're gonna pray for your healing. We're gonna pray for healing, we're gonna pray for deliverance, we're gonna pray for uh, power over your life, we're gonna pray together. It's going to be a building moment in your life and I've been encouraged at how it just keeps getting bigger every time we gather. You're gonna hear testimonies from people who've had miracles done in their life as a result of Revival Night. They prayed, 
Verse five, the earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 12, they gathered together. Many of them, many of them were gathered together and were praying. It would have been easy to be discouraged. Look at the Gentile church. It's blowing up. We're struggling. They have the huge budget. We're barely able to keep it together. They could be discouraged. James, now Peter. But what did they do? They brought it all to God in prayer. You wanna know else, how else they responded? They responded with doubts. They responded by gathering. They responded by praying in this order. They gathered, they prayed, and they doubted. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Wait a second, Brandon. I thought in gathering and in praying, it would remove all doubt. Not in this story. Some of you are already there. When we gather, bring your doubts. When you pray, bring your doubts. And Peter may be knocking on the door and you may have so many doubts, you're not even sure that's God knocking. You may not even be sure that that's your miracle knocking, but I'm telling you, if you're in the house and you're in the presence of God, bring your doubts because it's a lonely place. I have doubts so I won't gather. I have doubts so I won't pray. It's a cold place to be. Rather, you have doubts about the existence of God? Here's a prayer I want you to pray. God, help my unbelief. Show yourself to me. Watch it. Watch it. Bring your doubts. Wrestle with God. He'll wrestle with you. He'll go hand to hand. Your doubts do not repel God. He already knows you have them. Bring them to him, and you'll have a lifetime with the fruit of God's spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You'll have all this fruit while you're giving him your doubts. But if you refuse to do that, you're over here all alone with your doubts. You have none of the benefits. None of the benefits of the people of God. None of the benefits of the spirit of God over here cold and alone in your doubts. Now, which life do you think the enemy, the devil, wants you to live? with your doubts in the presence of God and the presence of his people, or with your doubts, totally isolated, alienated, and alone. This is not a church where we go, how dare you have doubts? This is a church where we say, bring those doubts to God. And that's what we see with this church. Can you imagine how they felt? Well, the prayers weren't answered for James. He didn't answer that prayer. He was put to death by the sword. Why even pray for Peter? I didn't get my job back. And James was put to death by the sword. Why even pray for Peter? My family didn't take me back. My wife didn't take me back. My husband didn't take me back. And James was put to death by the sword. Why should I even pray for Peter? But they did. Here's how to pray, and here's how to lean in whenever you have doubts. Number one, you just rest in God. Rest in God and I'm gonna move quickly. You rest in his character first. This is who he is. You tell him back, this is who I know you to be, God. You might even wanna throw in there a I don't feel it. That's how honest you can be with God. God, this is who you are. 
Now don't put him on the witness stand like you're cross-examining him, but you just say it. This is who you are. Don't be in a position where you're judging God. That's a little dangerous. But the best way to pray is, God, this is who you say you are. You say you are loving. God, you say you are true. You say you are with me. You say these things. And God, I'm struggling. You wrestle with his character, but you, you, you reflect his character. You speak his character. Watch what happens. You rest in the character of God. You rest in his plan. You rest in his plan. You rest in his timing. And you rest in his results. That's resting in God. Peter was totally asleep and he was dying the next day. I don't know about you, I'd be like, up. <laughs> you know, I'd be worried. I mean, maybe money problems have you up all night. Can you imagine like death problems? But like Jesus in the hull of that boat in the middle of a storm, Peter was able to sleep in the middle of his storm in that prison because he had rested in God to the point that he had the character of Christ in a storm. Rest in God and activate that faith. You gather with the church, you pray big, big prayers, and you believe that God can do it. Even if you're not sure, you just, God, I believe, I believe, I believe. We'll talk more about that tonight at, at Revival Night, but I believe you, God, that you can do it. You know, James, his timing, God decided, I'm going to allow James to death by the sword and Peter will walk out with an angel. God has his timing, God has his ways, but eventually Peter died. And I do know this about God's character, in the end he will be found just. I think James right now would say, God's good, I'm good with God, because see, James has been dead 1,980 some odd years. I think James is okay. He had a horrible death. He suffered. But for 1,900 and some odd, 80 some odd years, James has been in the presence of God pain free. He has been in glory. He has been in sheer delight. And here's the truth. The longer time passes, the less weight our earthly suffering carries. The more time that passes, the less our earthly suffering carries. So get that long perspective that I'm gonna look back one millennia into my eternity and I'm gonna look back on chronic pain. One millennia into my eternity, I'm gonna look back on that hard breakup or that messy divorce. One millennia into my eternity, I will believe God is good. So how about now, let's just in advance, put a down payment on that and let's say God is good. That's what activating your faith is. I believe that for eternity, I will say God is good, so now in my pain, I just put down a promissory note, let's go, I'm taking cash out of the promise, here it is, God, you are good, and I'm gonna find out just how good you are. Somebody need to hear that today. So you activate that faith, and then deliverance, <laughs> deliverance. This story is not about Peter's escape. This story is about Peter's deliverance. Peter, like a child, was led to his deliverance. He did nothing. Maybe God has led you step by step by step into your deliverance. Will you accept it? Will you accept it? There's a story I read this week by an Indian missionary named Sundar Singh. 
Sundar Singh. And he, he, he was doing a lot of mission work in the early 1920s. And he was from India, but he went to, he went to, I wrote it down. He went to, I lost it. That happens. Tibet. Thank you, Dr. Claude. He went to Tibet. He went to Tibet. And he was ministering to the Tibetan people. And he had a lot of persecution. The persecution got so bad that the tribal leader arrested him and threw him in a pit, which was death. He was thrown into this deep pit. He broke his arm when he landed. And he's surrounded by bones and decaying bodies because this is where they threw people to die. He was in the pit for three days. Three days. Crying out to God. Three days, no food. Three days, no water. Three days in the most horrible situation. Three days, pain. After three days, something happened on the top. The, the top of the pit was locked by a lid. And he heard the chain and the lock coming off and he saw the lid open and a rope dropped and they said, come up. He put his foot in that rope and they pulled him up. He couldn't climb up, he had a broken arm. They pulled him up. He gets up out of the pit and he looks around to thank his liberator and there's nobody there. There's nobody there. What did he do? He did what Peter did earlier in Acts. He went right back to that town and he started preaching with one bad arm. Start preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, the tribal leader's like, who let him out? The tribal leader arrested him again. And they began a thorough search trying to figure out who had the key. There's only one key. One key. Who has the key? Who has the key? Who has the key? Searching everywhere. Searching in people's homes. Searching in people's beds. Who has the key? Who has the key? Tribal leader had the key around his belt the whole time. One key, and it was right here the whole time. Mr. Singh was rescued supernaturally, like Peter. Can we stand to our feet? I wanna speak this over you. Peter was powerless without divine intervention. Peter was powerless without God coming through. He had no power, he had no hope without God. Herod was powerless against God. And I wanna speak this over you. You have, you have no hope without God. You have no power without God. But guess what? Your depression has no power against God. That breakup has no power against God. That broken heart has no power against the power of God. I'm speaking this over you today to say, hope that God wants to come through, that don't let your deliver, don't let your doubts be a lid over your life. Today, we pronounce God can do it again. We can believe that God can do it again. We can believe in a miracle today. So let's believe for saving faith. Let's believe for addictions to be healed. Father God, we love you. We praise you that you're doing something in this room today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. 
To learn more about Keystone Church, please visit us at keystonechurch.com.